Unreal. Uncensored. Unradio. Cliffcentral.com. It's heavy petting every Wednesday, 10 until 11, with myself, Leanne Mole. Um, and I'm very excited to say that I'm speaking to you today while I have a baby owl sitting on my lap. Very, very sweet. He's just settling down now. Um, so before we get into today's show, I wanted to just quickly catch up on the weekend. It was WODAC, the World of Dogs and Cats, um, at Gallagher Estate in Johannesburg or Midrand, and uh, had loads of fun there. I was part of a celebrity um animal challenge and that was to take dogs around an agility course um I, the first dog i got was really sweet um she was a jack russell but she hadn't performed in the crowd before so um we had to exchange her at the last minute and instead i got a very very energetic border collie puppy who managed to finish the course twice without me i was left in the middle of of the arena with the dog jumping over the last few beams and that, so um you know, we won, <laughs> but um, I didn't win because I still was way behind and you have to finish with your pet. Anyway, lots of fun. Um, there were so many awesome things going on and it's something that I look forward to every year. If you do get a chance to go next year, do. It's really, really fun. Um, okay, so in today's show, we've got, as I mentioned, a little baby owl who's um, sitting on my lap, two mouse birds and a snake um, has, was supposed to visit us, but apparently he's sleeping and staying in because it's really cold. Um, and of course, we've got a whole lot of people to accompany these animals. We've got Elaine, Cornelia and Penny, all from the Joburg Zoo. Thanks, guys, for joining us. And thanks for bringing these lovely little creatures. Good to be here. Good. Um, okay, so we've got, what is this little, is it a boy? We don't know. We it's haven't owl. got the results back yet, but we, well, I, I think he's a boy. He's Full of rubbish and okay. you know, it's a typical male. Um, but yeah, no, we haven't got the, the sex and results back yet. But um, my staff have um, christened him Nkani, which means stubborn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> incredibly, incredibly stubborn bird. Um, still goes home with me at night, uh, makes himself comfortable. My, my husband's actually joking last night that he's pretty much taken over our house. So does he? Uh, okay, he just wants to climb up onto the desk. <laughs> just, just put him on the desk. It's fine. <laughs> uh, I just got enveloped by, by fluffy wings. <laughs> He, he's busy. He's busy fledging, which is basically um, when they learn to fly. Yeah. So he just he just wants to be as high high up as possible. Oh. Um, as I said, he he took over the couch last night. So yeah. he just yeah he just wants to go up and explore and um, hasn't got much higher than than a couch yet. But um, he's getting his beautiful adult coloring and losing all of the baby fluff. So so now Elaine, why um does the zoo have this little baby animal and why do you get to take him home? <laughs> I, I have a very cool job. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> Uh, basically, we, we have a program at the zoo where we do education um, with owls. Uh, owls have got a very bad reputation in this country. A lot of people think they're associated with rich, witchcraft and bring evil right, and, and yeah. horrible things like that. Um, so basically, we have got a couple of owls at the zoo that we use for education. And um, we've got a pair or two pairs of Cape Eagle owls that um, have bred for the second time this year. So we decided um, that... Oh, there we go. Mark, awesome. Um, decided that we were going to take him um, and hand rear him because that's what you need to do when you use him for education. Um, so we were going to hand rear him, and yeah, he's now very humanized, and we can just sort of pretty much take him anywhere. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, he's he's going to get used to noise and people. Um, and when he's a bit older, he'll you know he'll be able to go out, and we'll take him out on a glove and and do talks and stuff with him. Yeah, because I mean his talons are pretty out there. Um, they they're sharp, but but he's very gentle. Um, he he sort of closes them when he's trying to grip onto something, but he, but he's not not going to sort of stab you with them. Um, he's not he's not a vindictive animal. He doesn't want to kill you. <laughs> so will you breed with him at a later stage or her? We we don't breed with our education animals. Um, it basically interferes with their training. Um, if they sort of well, we can't really stop the hormones, but um, we try and keep them sort of the same sex or as individual birds um, so that they don't want to breed and they don't sort of get, you know, breeding in their heads um, so that they can actually focus on the training. Because we do, we do training with all of our education birds as well. We, um, we do sort of flying training and, and glove training and things like that with okay. them. Okay, so the plan with him is to keep him – are you, are you going to be able to handle him like this when he's an adult? Yeah, he he'll actually be a little bit better behaved as an adult. <laughs> okay. Um when we when we handle them as adults, um we we actually have a glove, um a leather mm. glove and we um we have sort of uh, it's a leather bracelet that we put onto their um their legs called anklets. 
and then we basically attach him onto the glove and then uh, a well-trained owl will stay on the glove. Um, when we when we take him out to sort of places like this, we'll have a box that he's trained to go into and then when we come out the other side, then he'll pop out the box. Um, our intern, Sia, was appalled when he heard there was an owl coming in because <laughs> he said, isn't it going to be sleeping? <laughs> so um, he is very much wide awake, but they are no, not nocturnal, of course. Um, so when you take him home at night, does he... Go to sleep or does he flutter about? Um, I'm quite surprised that he is this active. I think it's the new surroundings and, and all the people. Um, generally, during the day, he is, you know, sort of very, very sluggish and sort of sleeping and that. Um, when, when we go home at night, as I said, he pretty much takes over the house. Um, but he also still is a baby. So there's also, you know, a routine of, of pretty much just sleeping whenever he gets a bit tired. So Does he eat differently to an adult or is he... Um, at Eating the moment, mice and things now. yeah. At the moment, he's he's getting um sort of smaller mice, um just because he he could probably eat big mice, but I'm a bit paranoid, so he's just getting sort of little mice. Um, but it's pretty much as as they grow up, they go sort of start off with really small little mice, and then as they get bigger, they get bigger mice. Mm. Um, and you've also got to um you've also got to bear in mind that you know the bones and the fur and everything, you know, it needs to be cut up really small so they can eat you know eat properly. And, yeah. Because they they cast uh, they cast pellets they they can't digest bones and fur and feathers and things like that so they actually um, regurgitate that um, okay. even even as adults so you have to slowly introduce that into their diet as they as they get older. Mm, I think anyone would have to have rats and mice slowly introduced into their diet. <laughs> 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 okay, so let me explain what's happening here. We've got a little bird who we haven't introduced yet. He's just flown off of um, the bird lady, as, as, as we're calling her. Um, oh, no, Elaine, you're the bird lady, right? <laughs> Cornelia's the reptile lady, but she has two birds sitting on her, and one has just flown off onto our producer <laughs> Duncan's arm, and he's freaking out. Okay, let's get to these little guests, because they, they seem to be budding, and they obviously want attention. What are these little birds? Um, okay, that is Princess, and yes, Princess is always looking for attention, Um they are both mouse birds. Um, Princess is a speckled mouse bird, and the other little one that's behaving itself and sitting all nicely and quietly there is Monster. Um, when that one was younger, it, it really was a monster, but as they're getting older, uh, I think I've named them wrong. Um, although, as I said, Princess definitely is the attention seeker in the in, in the, the pair of them. Okay, so mouse bird. Um, yes. The, the name basically is derived from... Um, when, when they're sort of moving around, um, you can see there she's sort of like scuttling around and scurrying around a little bit. Yeah. Um, they, they, you know, don't really look anything like mice, but it's, it's basically just from the movement, um, yeah. of them moving around. They do have long tails though. They do, yes, but it's, it's more the sort of scurrying around. And I mean, if, if she doesn't want you to catch her, you're not catching her. Yeah. <laughs> she, she kind of slips through your fingers. Yes, pretty so much. So she's about the size, um, I mean, I have to talk in terms of birds that I see in the wild on my, on my big wild trip in my car in Joburg. She's about the size of a mossy, but she's got like a long swallow tail um, and quite brown as well. I saw some orange coloring on one of them, I think. Or was that just a bit of fruit? No, no. The red face has got a, a very beautiful sort of red mask. Um, it's not sort of fully developed yet because um, he's only six months old. But yeah, he's got the sort of um, orangey red face and then the sort of bluey, bluey coloring. He's definitely got nicer or prettier colors than than the other one yeah yeah <laughs> okay so cornelia the reptile lady is sitting there with a one bird on her head and the other one snuggled into her neck you don't mind this not at all no you don't mind that's shame and now it's on the microphone this is such fun <laughs> <laughs> cornelia was actually telling me in the car on the way here that she she used to be really scared of birds so but a lot um, of people do have a phobia of birds i think anyone that hangs around with me doesn't really have that that option yeah <laughs> I mean, and it's amazing because they they kind of just stick to you. They don't they don't really fly away. Um, although we do have a cat in the parking lot here that tried to follow me in this morning. So just be careful on your way out. <laughs> we wouldn't want any accidents. No, no, we we had a very close call a couple of days ago, so we're okay. we're very aware of, of where they are. <laughs> if if you if anyone would like to call us to ask uh, Elaine Cornelia any questions about birds or reptiles, you can call us on oh eight six one triple five one eight nine. Uh, you can also tweet me at Leanne Moll. That's L E I G H M O. Sorry, <laughs> how do I spell my name? L E I G H A N N M O L. Okay, so we have a volunteer here as well, Elaine. This is someone that you, that you um, use a lot near you. Um, she's a volunteer who is very, very quiet and has a bird on her shoulder. Her name's Ronnie, and explains to us what this little birdie's about. 
Um, okay, Ron- Ronnie's a bit, bit stage stage shy. Um, Ronnie has been with me now for about six months. Um, we have a, a volunteer program at the zoo. Uh, we've got sort of volunteers of, of seven, you know different ages and different backgrounds. Um, basically, uh, Ronnie is busy studying animals and wants to work with animals. So she's um, yeah, sh- she's just been following me around for the last six months and. Um, I've been very grateful because she's incredibly useful and, um, yeah, she's a good slave. But um, <laughs> I actually started off as a volunteer as well myself. Um, so, yeah, I've got a very soft spot for volunteers. Um, you know, they're very passionate people. They, you know, they they come and volunteer their time for free. Um, I mean, they, they do get to play with awesome animals. But, um, and, yeah, I mean, Ronnie actually had um, had the owl home a couple of, couple of nights ago as well. And um, her boyfriend's also, or was, of birds, I don't think he's got that option anymore Jeez. either. <laughs> you ladies have to have very understanding partners, that's for sure. My my husband loves it. He's he's just as animal mad as I am. So, oh, good. Yeah. And then um, with Ronnie, we've got Gimli, who's also a little bit stage uh, stage shy. Um, Gimli is a black headed Konya, um, and he he was actually found in the zoo uh, a couple of years ago on Christmas Day. And um, yeah, we we tried to find his owner and you know put out advertising and, and you know. okay. So he's the type of bird you'd keep as a pet. Yes, he is. He he was definitely someone's pet. Um, but he is he's very temperamental. Um, he has his days when you know he's he's really not interested. Um, as most most parrots do. Uh, we have a lot of parrots at the zoo and and quite a lot of tame ones that that people have donated to the zoo. Um, you know, past pets that that they sort of can't keep anymore. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, I I love my birds, but I. <laughs> They noisy and messy and they bite and luckily luckily Gimli doesn't doesn't bite too too badly. But mm. um I've got this pet crocodile I've been trying to get rid of for ages. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Gimli, let's explain him. He's got very, very bright green undercoat and on top he's got some darker green feathers. As by his name he's got a black head, um and some black tail feathers as well. Um very camera shy, trying to take a photo with my cell phone and he ran around the back of Ronnie's neck. Um, so he seems to know what they do and doesn't like it very much. So, um, okay, so Cornelia, can you tell me about the snake who just didn't feel like coming today? Uh, well, what's going on at the moment at the zoo, as far as the reptiles are concerned, they are in hibernation, meaning that they are sleeping for the winter. So we don't take chances taking the reptiles out of the, you know, the closed environment mm. because we regulate the heat and everything to keep them nice and warm. Right. And uh, we don't want it to take the risk of removing them from the heat enclosures and then bringing them out in the cold. So that's why none come to visit today. Yes. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll hope for them for another time. Um, in the meantime, let's move on a little bit on heavy petting. But please, ladies, stay here. I'm, I'm enjoying this thoroughly and we'll, we'll chat some more. Um, I interviewed Colin Bell, as I mentioned last week, um, in Hout Bay. Now, his operations successfully reintroduced rhinos into the Botswana wild, where they had almost disappeared. We spoke about why such a project worked in Botswana, um, why there's been a success in the war against rhino poaching, also in Namibia, Swaziland, and even Nepal. Yet South Africa's losing this war. We're really battling, and we're losing it fast. Um, I asked Colin if he's given up hope. My problem, I'm one of the few people in the rhino world who's lived through an extinction, but I've also solved an extinction. And I, I was very fortunate. I arrived in Botswana in 1977, and I was my first job. I was a safari guide up there, and um, <clears throat> we we had rhino, but I did, you know, we just assumed we'd go drive around with our guests and we'd see rhino. And uh, but over time, we've started to see less and less rhinos, and we just, you know, maybe we're not on our game today, or maybe they're moving around. But suddenly, about the sort of about 1986, nobody knows the exact date because it suddenly just goes quah, and suddenly there are no more rhinos. It's only when you don't have rhinos you suddenly realize what an important part of your life they were and how important they were to your inner soul. Ooh. But as a safari guide, there were three terrible things. First one is in the middle of winter, you wake up and you've got to get your guests going, and you're out and camping in the middle of nowhere. And you wake up and you've got a puncture. There's nothing worse. You're freezing cold. Your knuckles are getting graunched and all the rest of it. Second thing, you've got a thirsty bunch of folks with you and there's no beer. And the third one, and every safari it happened. The guys, after having a fantastic time, two weeks or whatever with the same guests, eventually, somewhere in those two weeks, they're going to say to you, where are the rhinos? Why aren't we seeing rhinos? And it is the worst question. You just absolutely 
dread for that question to come because Botswana in those days was a big five destination and then it became a big four destination. And I remember vividly to this day exactly where I saw rhinos. I don't know exactly. So I mean, when I go back and I remember that floodplain, there were three, four rhinos over there. And then going through these woodlands, that was where the rhinos were. We had all, all our spots. And so when a guest says to you, why are there no rhinos? Why haven't we seen rhinos? It's kind of, it's the hardest punch you've got to take. Because and you've got to tell them. You've got to, say, you've got to say they've been killed. They've been poached. And it is nothing And we have worse. no control. Absolutely. But then what really was, this is where Botswana was fantastic. In the early 2000s, we started to, uh, we had a, uh, an area on the top of Chiefs Island, which was totally surrounded by water. And it is impossible for people to get in and out. There's one tiny track miles away. And we lobbied government to go and see if they would agreed to us reintroducing rhino. And they were too scared because they were scared that of the ramifications, they introduce rhino and then it becomes extinct again. But after about two, three years of lobbying, they finally agreed. And uh, it was the most fantastic process. So after going through that extinction process and watching what happened to all of us inwardly and our guests, and we could see the occupancies. Big five was better mm. than big four. So we st- often struggled to get guests to come to Botswana because... We didn't have rhino. Yeah. So rhino, suddenly we realized how important they were to our lives and to our businesses and to our bottom line at the end of it. But to their credit, the Botswana government in the early 2000s allowed us to go and do a little pilot project. And we bought five rhinos. And we paid for them ourselves. And we built a little boma up on the top of Chiefs Island. And we trucked them in and we got them in there and we put them in the bomas and they were surviving quite comfortably. Up to that point, they were our assets. And the day we lifted the gates to the Boma and we opened and they went free into Marimi Game Reserve, they were no longer our assets. So it was a business thing. We got, yeah. we've lost millions. Let, let that go completely. But it was such a fantastic feeling. So on the one hand, you were sort of the count on the side, you was going, Ooh, you know. But the, the inner you would just, it was joy. It was absolute joy. And those five runners went out. And they bred and they weren't poached and all the rest of them. The Botswana government just got on board. And so we did another introduction of uh, further 20. And from this, the Botswana rhino population thrived. I mean, it's been the most extraordinary story of how successful Mm. it's been. Now Botswana's got rhinos in the wild. But most important, we've got a a government which is fully behind us. They realize how important rhinos are to the economy. And so if there's any issues, any threat of poaching, you've got the military is there in seconds as a radio system. Within 20 minutes, you've got the most powerful uh, military uh, and motivated just to come sort out the problem. So there's a complete backing from every single component of society to make sure that those rhinos are safe because they know that their livelihoods are directly in line with the success of the tourism industry. And, you know, Botswana, in 1966, when it was independent, was one of the poorest, five poorest countries in the world. And, and uh, it's thriving now. It's thriving. It's doing amazing work. And it's because they brought communities into their business model. So the communities, if you go and stay in a Botswana Lodge, 6% of your turnover automatically goes to community structures. Now, 6% doesn't sound like lots, but 6% of turnover is about 35% of net profit in a good year. And in a bad year, it's 100% of net profit. So the communities own 35% of every lodge in Botswana without investing a cent. I mean, it's the most remarkable system, mm. but they've got it. But the, because of that, the poaching levels are the lowest. It's not, I mean, you'll never have no poaching. And communities always want more money. It's, it's a given. It's, but as a result of the structures in Botswana, it means it's the process in place that rhinos and wildlife can survive better than most places in Africa. Yeah. The other success story is Namibia, where they've got this fantastic community story where the communities are part of it. And both Botswana and Namibia have gone from 18% formally protected to over 40% formally protected and the difference between the two of these community structures and these community conservancies. The other success is Swaziland and Swaziland's driven their rhino program based on they've taken away the, the rights for judges to give sentences at their discretion. So if you caught poaching, minimum 15 years, that's it. You can't Make a decision. You can't say, oh, I like you, I'm going to give you four. Mm. So if you're going to poach, you know if you get caught, 15 years you're in jail. Finished. No right for parole, nothing like that. So the Swaziland, they've also spent a lot of money on making sure that the informers are well rewarded. So mm. if you've got a tip-off, you get rewarded. So people in Swaziland, they dob in anybody 
And so they know before there's going to be a poaching incident what's going to happen. Yes. And they sort it out. The other country which is very successful is Nepal. Now, you think Nepal, which is a big rhino population. You think so close to Asia and so close to Laos in particular, which is where a lot of the stuff goes through. You think that Nepal would have troubles. But right from the top, from the politicians through to the military, they've got the Gurkhas, the famous Gurkhas, are in the parks protecting the parks. Then the next level down, they've got communities. The communities get between 30 and 50% of all the revenue from the parks. Then they also open up the parks for 10 days a year, and they allow the communities to go and cut grass and thatch, whatever they need. All the way down, and then their biggest thing, and this is where I think we're in trouble in South Africa, they don't really go for the poacher, although they put the Gurkhas there to deter the poacher. But their main strategy is to go and target the middleman. And the, the middleman, there's only a few of them. Mm. I mean, and we know the names and addresses and telephone numbers of tw- the 29 middlemen in Mozambique which are driving this process. 70% of the rhino which uh, poached go, back out, go out through Mozambique. We know where they live. We know their phone numbers. Mm. And yet, it's not there's other more pressing things in South Africa, it appears. Yeah, exactly. That uh, rhinos, this is not an issue. You know, we have these stories where we're trying to do memorandums with the Mozambique government and it's been dragging on for two years, but there's no real kind of urgency. Hang on, this is this is not something which may go extinct in the next generation. No, this is something now. In our lifetimes. And we've got to wake up. We've got to get yeah. serious on this thing. That's Colin Bell, who is a rhino conservation expert and has amazingly seen the ups and downs of rhino conservation in his lifetime. Unfortunately, as we know, we are on a down in South Africa at the moment, but he keeps hope alive and has lots of ideas for projects um, that might help the rhino population in South Africa at some point. So we just want to take a look at some other animals in the, in the news here on Heavy Petting. Um, I spoke last week about Argentina's last captive polar bear, and there was a huge petition by hundreds of thousands of people on all sorts of social media asking that he be moved to Canada because he was super sad at the Argentinian zoo. Um, this was because he was seen to be pacing up and down. He was restless. And uh, also, we know that the heat in Argentina is completely different to Canada, and he would probably be a lot happier in a place like Canada. Well, the director of the zoo, the Mendoza Zoo in western Argentina, has said that this 28-year-old bear will not be relocated. Animal rights activists have been saying that the bear, his name is Arturo, paces nervously in his concrete enclosure and suggests that he suffers from depression um, and so they've campaigned to move him to Winnipeg. But the zoo director says Arturo only suffers the typical ailments of old age which would make relocation too risky and he's asked that fans of Arturo stop bothering the bear. Um, those, those are our little guests who are in here today with Johannesburg Zoo um, animals and people. <laughs> the animals, we've, we've got a beautiful young owl, uh, we've got two mouse birds, and we have a little parrot too. And uh, joining them are the human kinds, Elaine, Cornelia and Ronnie. Okay, I wanted to ask you, Elaine, um, I went to an owl sanctuary at Spear, owl and hawk sanctuary actually, uh, two weekends ago. And there I saw a whole lot of little baby owls. Um, and I was quite interested to see these three little barn owls with their white faces sitting on a, you know, right next to each other on a, on a stick, a doll stick. And um, if you played them a song on your cell phone, it seemed as if they were dancing. They'd turn their little heads from side to side all at the same time. Is that something that could have, could have happened? Are they hearing the music? Um, basically, what, what the story with owls are is um, they don't have ears like we do. They've got um, asymmetrical ears, so they situate slightly different heights on the side of the head. Um, and they also don't have the external sort of, you know, uh, you know, like a, like apparatus that sort of, yeah, of the, the shell that sort of um, focuses the sound. So yeah. they basically have to turn their heads, um, it's called head bobbing, to to pick up the sound um, from the different directions and to, to sort of pinpoint what's what's going on. Um, and you, you see it with all, all our species. If there's a lot of noise or there's noises coming from different parts, they, they tend to bob their heads around a lot and turn their heads around. Mm. Okay, so. so they weren't really into Britney Spears. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Well, I thought we had it on there, but anyway. Um, okay, Cornelia, I wanted to speak to you about um, a potential guest that we could have in the studio in, in, in the summer months at least. Um, is he one of your favorites? What is he? Uh, she's a uh, albino, she? yes, uh, albina Burmese python. 
and she's 3.5 meters long and she weighs 25 kilograms. Okay, so we're talking really big. These are the types that you see people wrapping around their necks, etc. And yes. uh, uh, well, gee, I can mention Britney Spears again. She was in a music <laughs> video with one of those around her. Um, so when you say albino and a female, is is she a yellow color or a pale pink color? Yeah, the albino snakes um, with the Burmese pythons that are yellow and white. Right. And actually, how the zoo acquired her, she um, came to us as a pet. People bought her and they didn't do their homework and she started outgrowing the enclosure and they couldn't look after her anymore. So they came and dropped her off at the zoo. And because of the fact that they provided the wrong light for her, she got injured. She had very severe burn wounds on her back. Mm. But our vets, because we have great vets that are excellent in reptiles, they sorted her out and she's now the most beautiful snake you've ever seen. So you obviously have to, I mean, a python's not going to bite you, although they can bite, but they generally are constrictors. Um, you're not attacked by snakes when, you, when you're doing your day-to-day job every day? Uh, I have to be very careful. Um, I have been bitten twice, um, one by a bow, one by a python. A okay, python. so they really do bite. Yes. Right. And obviously not venomous, but, but a nasty bite? Yes, to be quite honest, um, I was very surprised by the ball python bite because the bow that bit me was a lot, a lot larger than the ball python. And the ball python's bite was a lot worse than the bow's bite. Okay. But you've recovered, no danger. No. You look okay. Yes, it was just a <laughs> finger. <laughs> um, okay, we've got a question here that I'm sure Elaine can help us with. Um, do you communicate with the birds like one would do with a dog? And if so, do you think you could teach an owl to dance? This is another dancing owl question. <laughs> I think everyone's got a bit of an obsession yeah, with dancing owls. <laughs> um, owls are incredibly stubborn animals, um, hence Nkani's name. Um, we do, we do train our owls, as I said earlier. Um, basically, we train them to do a number of things. We train them to fly to us. We train them to, um, get on a scale, you know, basically things like that. Um, unfortunately, a lot of people think um, owls are very, very clever, but um, because they've got such large eyes, they they don't really have that much space for their brains. So oh, while so while they while they're not stupid, they're not sort of Einstein's. So okay. um, I'm sure you could teach them to dance, but they would probably forget everything else that you taught them um, <laughs> along with that. So we we basically try and teach them things that are um, you know beneficial. So we we train them to fly to us or to fly between trainers. Um, so that they get exercise and it stimulates their natural, um, sort of natural behavior. And, um, you know, we, we train them to get on the scale so that we can weigh them every day, um, which is very important when you're training to make sure that you don't overfeed or underfeed or, or anything like that. Yeah. Well, speaking of feeding, um, but this isn't feeding birds, it's feeding dogs. <laughs> We've got Belinda Pretorius, who is the owner of Dog Matters on the line, and she'll be chatting to us about raw dog food and how you can even start your dog on a raw food diet. Belinda, thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. Morning. Okay, so tell me, raw food diet, are we talking about um, raw meat? I mean, I've heard things like raw chicken not being that great for animals. Yes, we talk raw dog food, so we don't cook it. We give it to our dogs raw. Chicken is free range, and the reason there's so many stories about feeding raw chicken is because of the possible risk of salmonella and any other bugs in the chicken. But if you get it from a reputable supplier like we do, then your risks are minimized. Okay. So besides chicken, what else are we are we talking about here with raw, raw dog food? Raw dog food, we also make turkey and we make beef and tripe. Okay. And um, obviously, is, this has to be refrigerated or frozen? Yes, that's right. It's, we sell it frozen. You keep it in your freezer, and when you're ready to give it to your dog, you simply defrost it and cut the packet and pop it in a bowl, and that's it. They eat it. Okay, so what benefits are you seeing? Um, and I believe you have Dr. Sarah with you as well? No, Dr. Sarah Peters is unfortunately unavailable. She's okay. out consulting. But the benefits, sure, I could spend all day, but yeah. I'll just give you a few. We don't add any preservative or additives to our food, so it's totally natural, fresh. Um, they have a shiny coat, they drink less water because our food has lots of fruit and veg matter, okay. so the food's wet. Um, their stools are smaller, they have a sweeter breath, the coat is shiny and soft, the 
teeth are cleaner. I can go on. Yeah. Um, what about animals? I mean, when we walk into a vet these days or to an, into a pet store, I'm, we're just overwhelmed by all of the pet foods that are on shelves for different breeds, for different sized animals, for different ages, for different ailments, uh, for arthritis, for stomach issues. Do you feed dogs different raw food or is raw food raw food? Yes, raw food is raw food. Obviously, if your dog has a special condition or um, ailment, you would consult your vet. Example, I have a diabetic Labrador and he's been on my raw food since I adopted him three years ago. So it's really you make an empowered, educated decision about the food you'd like to feed your dog. Mm. Our, our philosophy is we take care of our, our real children about what we feed them. So why not t- take care of your furry children and feed them what you would want to eat? Our food is all for human consumption. Well, I'd prefer mine a little cooked, but we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, so uh, what about the whole argument that dogs and cats need to chew food in order to keep their teeth healthy and strong and clean. Yes, we, we advocate that, uh, uh, support that theory entirely. As part of a dog matters diet, we also advise that your dogs have raw meaty bones, and we call them dog ice creams because they release endorphins into the body like we have a chocolate. And by the dog chewing a bone, he strengthens his jaw and neck muscles, he cleans his teeth, and he gets a good feel because dogs are designed to chew. Okay, Belinda, where can people buy this raw dog food? If you go and look on our website, we are we have stockers in Johannesburg, or we can deliver to freezer to freezer in Johannesburg. And in Cape Town, we also have stockers and also distributors you can also deliver to your freezer. Give us that email, that uh, website address. www.dogmatters.co.za That's dogmatters.co.za M-A-T-T-E-R-S. Fantastic. Belinda, thanks so much for chatting yes, to yes. us. This is this is something that um, I've heard about before, but I've, I've kind of been too afraid to ask um, because of, of just information overload. Yes. But uh, this sounds really simple. Um, it, 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 it's just, you know, it's what you put in is what you get out. Mm. Uh, I always say, you know, there's so much dog food out there. We like to think that we are the best in the market for what we do, but... All I'm saying or asking our customers, make an informed, educated decision. We know where our meat comes from. I can tell you the suppliers, how the, how the animals are raised. I know my cold chain. Not many suppliers can give you that answer. To me, that gives me comfort in my own dog's life. Yeah. I'm sure it gives comfort in our customer's life. No, I think some humans aren't even eating food that good. Yes. And, you know, we register with the Department of Agriculture. We're totally compliant. We all have all our ducks in a row. We have an open-door factory policy. So it's just about educating yourself. You know, if I can't pronounce the name of a food ingredient, I don't really want to eat it. Mm. And I think that goes for dog food as well. Yeah. Belinda, great. Thanks so much for pleasure. educating us and for sharing pleasure. with us. Thank Any you. pleasure. Great. Thanks for having me. That's Belinda from Dog Matters who's been speaking to us about raw dog food, um, which is something you might want to try if you've... I come across so many issues with different foods. I know sometimes that it seems like it's the end of the world, but there are other solutions. Well, speaking of dogs, um, we feature a different breed every week. And uh, before I get to that, I wanted to speak about the Pitbull Terrier, which is one of the most misunderstood canine breeds, um, banned in most countries. Uh, and something that we, we don't consider is that the breed itself might not be aggressive as you know, in its in its genes or the way it's the way it's built, the way it's designed, and the way it's, it's uh, grows up. But it's all human interaction that creates this problem. Raising an aggressive dog and an, a dog to be aggressive and to perhaps take part in fights and and that sort of thing. So I think it's got a lot to do with the humans who raise these animals. I mean, here's a story in the news this week about a 13-year-old deaf boy. His name is Nick Lamb. Um, in the U.S., in Indianapolis, he recently spent his first night at home alone, which is a big deal for every teenager. But unfortunately for Nick, his day didn't end the way he thought it would. He usually wears a hearing aid, but Nick decided to nap without it. And because of this, Nick didn't hear the smoke alarms beeping when a fire started in the family home. Uh, but luckily for him, his family dog, a two-year-old pit bull named Ace, smelled the fire and quickly tried to wake his young owner. Um, he continued to lick Nick's face until he woke up, 
and until they were able to flee the burning home. So thanks to Ace's quick thinking, everyone got out safely. Right, to our breed of the week, um, we've been featuring the 10 most popular breeds in South Africa. The 10th most popular dog breed in South Africa is the Pomeranian. Last week, we featured number nine, the Beagle, and this week, number eight, the Miniature Schnauzer. It's the mustachioed Miniature Schnauzer. Back in the day, the Miniature Schnauzer's mustache was matted into battle armor. To protect against their scratching rodent prey, maybe that tough Fu Manchu style drew Kung Fu master Bruce Lee to own a mini schnauzer. Some people are intimidated by that. To me, they look like little, little men, and so I just kind of laugh at them when I see them. The breed's more gentlemanly qualities endeared owners like Bill Cosby, Bob Dole, and Mary Tyler Moore. Though when miniature schnauzers get together, they're hardly gentlemen. Many schnauzers in a group are known to throw their heads back and howl like wolves. The miniature schnauzer is bouncy and bold. While all other terriers were developed on the British Isles, the miniature schnauzer is German. The terra in terrier means earth. These dogs were bred to go down into the earth to hunt vermin. It's clear that we did a very good job in creating dogs that are very, very courageous. Cross the standard schnauzer with a poodle and the affenpincher, and you get cute. Also known as the miniature schnauzer. Among the most lovable, enthusiastic of all of the dog breeds. Americans seem to have a soft spot for this dog. Historically, one of the most popular breeds in the United States and steadily gaining popularity. A handsome rectangular muzzle distinguishes the miniature schnauzer. The word schnauzer comes from the German for muzzle. A thick, wiry double coat which shed dirt when the dog went to ground for the rodents. It's a fiery dog with a wire coat, and when you hear wired head terrier, this one really fits the bill. One of the things they excel at is um, barking. Miniature schnauzers tend to be very easily alerted and stimulated. This breed has exceptional hearing. They can hear sound frequencies twice as high as humans and 50% higher than sheep. Miniature schnauzers are sometimes teamed up with German shepherds to guard flocks and property. The sharp-hearing schnauzers will start barking to alert the German shepherds if there is an intruder. They seem to be predisposed to really accomplishing something together, and they just really, really uh, enjoy teamwork. In general, they're very adaptable. Miniature schnauzers are a perfect example of a dog that does well in almost any environment. They do have some health concerns, so look out. Heart and eye problems are common in this breed. There's also a funny condition of, like, uh, blackheads that can develop along the back of their spines. That wiry double coat will become matted if not attended to. If you are going to leave it long, then they're probably going to need daily grooming. Miniature schnauzers love to snuggle and fit in well within the family. It's a wonderful dog. It's a great family-type dog. Loves people. The miniature schnauzer is a favorite of trainers. Miniature schnauzers are probably among the smartest breeds that I have ever worked with. I love miniature schnauzers. Every miniature schnauzer is different, but generally this is a highly adaptable breed with a smattering of heart, eye, and other health issues. That coat demands regular grooming, and they're a cinch to train. And this is a great all-around family dog. Ah, the miniature schnauzer. You're listening to Heavy Petting with Leanne Mole every Wednesday, 10 to 11 a.m. And the miniature schnauzer self-proclaimed expert, um, Damon Calvari. I never, ever thought that I'd have you on my show, but reluctantly, here you are. Look, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but yeah. I mean, I've got three miniature schnauzers, and I want to just congratulate you for highlighting this particular breed of dog. There we go. Third, uh, eighth most popular in South Africa. In really? Terms of breed, yeah. In 10th place, Pomeranian, 9th Beagle, 8th Miniature Schnauzer, and we'll reveal the rest over the next few Apparently, weeks. there's about 100,000 of them in the United States. Okay. And they are amazing dogs because they got all the qualities, well, a lot of the good qualities that you want in a dog all in one dog because they're hypoallergenic. They, if you're allergic to uh, to hair and that, they don't shed. Um, Personality-wise, they are just so they're intelligent, they're friendly, also, if you want to 
if you ignore them, if you're kind of the person that doesn't want to play with your dog all the time, they're also fine, fine with that. Yeah. But if you're the other end of the spectrum, like my wife Bernice, who wants to cuddle all the time. Like Elmira. Then there's your customer. I mean, my one dog, Candace, uh, I mean, she's... It's a very adult name for Candace your dog. German. Mm. Candace Derman. Candace is in my... She sleeps cuddled in Bernice's arms every night. And they're just so amazing. Also, that their size is also very convenient. So you can fit them onto your bed. So we can have three miniature schnauzers in a row. In a row in our queen in our queen size bed. Have you ever tried to train them? No, no. Look, training is an interesting this is just my point of view. I don't believe in formal training. Mm. What I did was is when they were puppies, I got them at nine weeks of age, took them to the park on a regular basis, literally every single day for the first year, and that was their training. Socializing. Also taking you take the, the, the one important training that I did was for them to come. If you whistle, mm. they'll come. So then when they came, you give them a reward. Yes. And that's the most important thing. So when you take them to the park, you can control them. They, they've learned to, to come when I call them. Yeah. That's the most important thing with miniature schnauzers. Another one negative thing about the miniature schnauzer is that they do suffer from separation anxiety very easily. And if they are stressed, they have the most annoying, terrible, high-pitched cry or bark. Yeah. I don't know what you want to call it. So for the first year to 18 months, if you get a miniature schnauzer, you've got to have strength. You've got to have yeah. patience because you've got to train this dog. You've got to train that separation anxiety out of the dog. And what that requires, is it's not easy. So you, when you leave the dog at home, you must completely ignore the dog. Completely. Don't say goodbye. Completely ignore the dog. They will cry and, oh, it's awful. And then when you get back home... <laughs> You must completely ignore your dog for the first five minutes. Okay. You, but again, it takes a long time. Sure. Yeah, and a lot of willpower. Oh, but, but and most people don't get it. Most people don't. But you um, know, every puppy comes with, every breed comes with its yeah, problems. So that's the one disadvantage of a miniature schnauzer. Well, that's, I mean, I, I that sounds we, good. Only one is a disadvantage. Yeah, I met a, we met a couple at the vet that my wife, Bernice, knew them. They had a miniature schnauzer and they admitted to us that they cannot leave their dog by themselves. They they just couldn't get that. They couldn't train. They didn't have the the, the willpower, the strength to to train the dog out of the separation anxiety. Mm. But otherwise, super duper dogs. Super duper. Thank you very much, Damon Calvari, miniature schnauzer expert. Um, um aficionado. Aficionado, as he likes to be called. Okay, we've still got with us um, Elaine, Cornelia, and Ronnie from the Johannesburg Zoo, who've brought in a baby owl, two mouse birds, and a parrot as well, um, and. Before they go off and take this cute little furry guy off of my lap, um, I just wanted to chat to you, Elaine, about the, the conservation efforts that are going on at the Johannesburg Zoo. I think that's almost taking over what a zoo is traditionally known as, and that's just to gawk at animals. It's really become important. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, I've been involved with the zoo for about 10 years now, and, and sort of even, you know, in my sort of time, I've, I've definitely seen a huge shift. Um, you know, historically zoos were always seen, as you said, as just, you know, places for people to go and, and, you know, look at animals in cages and, you know, purely, purely human entertainment. And, um, I mean, you know, these days, you know, there is obviously that, that aspect of entertainment, but there's also, um, you know, there's the other aspects as well of, of education, um, conservation and research that are all, you know, equally important, um, you know, to, to the zoo and, and to sort of facilities like the zoo. Um, we we are involved with a number of conservation projects. Um, from the bird side, the the sort of three main ones that that we're involved in at the moment. Um, we're involved with the Watzel Crane Recovery Program and the Southern Ground Hornbill um, Mabula Southern Ground Hornbill Project. Um, and basically, with both of those programs, um, the numbers of of those birds are declining. And um, our main role in both of those projects is to um, we get second eggs from the wild, both of those species. Yeah, that's right. Um, in fact, I spoke about it last week. The wattle crane lays generally lays two eggs. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, and only looks after one, and yes. the other is rejected. Yeah, so it's those the same are the with, eggs. It's the same with the, the southern ground hornbill as well. Um, okay. So yeah, in both cases, those those chicks would would die. Um, and then yeah, we we get those second eggs and we we raise them at the zoo. And um, in both cases, we've sort of only reared for captivity at the moment. Um. But the wattle cranes, they're currently rearing chicks down in KZN. Um, and, yeah. and yeah, hopefully they will be starting to release those soon, which is very, very exciting. I think exciting. it's amazing. I mean, it's people are all over the rhino at the moment and all our efforts are focused on that and, and elephant as well. Um, but there are fewer wattle cranes in the world than there are rhinos. It's, yeah. it's really quite dire. 
I think, I mean, it, there's so many species that, that need attention and it, it is, it's just so sad. Um, you know, and, and the majority of species, um, there's also the vulture program that we're involved in, the Cape vulture breeding program. And, um, you know, in, in all the cases, it's, you know, it's, it's the same sort of thing that, um, that is causing the decline in, in the species. You know, it's habitat destruction, um, you know, direct persecution. Um, in the cases of the vultures and the hornbill, um, poisoning is, is a big threat as well. Um, and electrocution. So there's, you know, there's sort of threats that are common to, to a lot of, a lot of species. Mm. Um, with the vultures, we, we basically are very involved in the education side of things. Um, and as Cornelia said earlier, we have an amazing vet department. We've got three full-time vets, um, all, you know, very, very clued up and very knowledgeable on, on their wildlife. Um, and for all of the conservation projects, these vets, um, you know, they do, they do veterinary work for, for the birds and, um, you know, the birds get brought into the zoo if, if there's injuries. Um, in the cases of the vultures, um, if they can be released after that, then, you know, that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, if not, then they, they get rehabilitated and, and left, you know, in, in either the zoo or, or a facility where they can be used, used for education. Well, at least there's a place for them. And, I mean, I think what you guys do is absolutely amazing. Thank I love you. how the reptile lady sitting with two birds, one on her head and one pecking at her <laughs> neck. Um, and it's obviously this very cute little guy on my lap, um, this baby owl. Thank you so much for bringing them in. I'm, I, I don't know, I think... You were a bit late. Did you? Did the owl not hoot in the traffic? <laughs> walk, walk, walk. It hasn't started hooting yet. It's it's too small. It's it's still a baby. That's why you were late. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I didn't have my hooter. <laughs> thank you so much, ladies. And uh, yeah, the work you're doing is amazing. And good luck thank with the rest you, of and it. Thank you very much for thank having us. Thank you very us. much. Thank you. Good luck getting out the parking lot. Remember, there's a cat on the loose that I spotted <laughs> earlier today. So just be careful of that. And speaking of cats, these are eleven secrets that your cats don't want you to know. Can you keep a secret? My urine glows under black light. I can give birth to over a hundred kittens in my lifetime. And each litter can have multiple fathers. We bite 40,000 humans in America each year. We have hunted 33 species to extinction. I don't like drinking water that's next to my food. Oh, I should have told you that. My collarbone is not connected to other bones. If I'm not neutered, my penis will grow hundreds of tiny spines on it. We rarely meow at each other. It's just something we do to humans. I sleep 16 hours a day. And when I'm awake, I spend a third of my time grooming myself. Shh. Don't tell anyone. Uh, our sneaky cats. We know that they're up to stuff all the time. And uh, we don't even know the half of it. I didn't know some of those facts. Um, this week, we don't have a cause of the week. But I do want to chat about what will be happening um, on Monday and t- or Tuesday this coming week, um, I'll be taking part in Project Pedicure, which is a campaign created by the Society for Animals in Distress, and it's supported by none other than the Laser Boutique for Humans. And now you wonder how this this comes into play. Well, the Laser Boutique also um, is obviously involved in a lot of pedicure uh, pedicures for humans, and they've decided to unite this project with um, human pedicures and looking after equine feet so almost like horse pedicures um so that'll be quite interesting we'll be off to the tembisa coal yard and um force i'll be meeting force that's the horse who received her pedi and new shoes and has human company to mingle with during her treatment um and mrs south africa will be there too which will be fantastic so i'll report back on that that project if you want to look it up um is called project pedicure and it's based on gauteng's east rand Okay, what else have I got for you here? Well, um, oh yes, last week we didn't get to hear about the dog that saved the World Cup. Um, sorry I left you on the edge of your seats and I'd like to bring you that information right now. This is all about, um, 1966, way back when the World Cup trophy was stolen from Methodist Central Hall and it was thought that it may never ever be found until it was discovered by a border collie. Here's Alex from The Animalist. 
Did you know in 1966, FIFA thought that the trophy was lost forever? That's right, while on display at the Methodist Central Hall in Westminster, a thief managed to slip past over a dozen guards and steal it. But thank goodness for man's best friend. A scruffy-looking collie mix named Pickles came to the rescue. While on an ordinary walk with his owner, Pickles discovered an extraordinary package wrapped in newspaper underneath a car. When he began sniffing and pawing at the parcel, his owner opened it and found none other than the missing World Cup trophy. Now, as it turns out, the thief just happened to have ditched the trophy right near Pickles' house. Now, besides being honored by FIFA at the 1966 Games, the dog started in a feature film called The Spy with the Cold Nose, appeared on numerous TV shows, and was named Dog of the Year. And to think his original owner didn't even want him because he chewed on the furniture. Well, Alex from The Animalist has been really busy this week. He's also bringing us new facts that we didn't know about sloths. Um, a recent study shows that sloth hair may be a valuable source of a fungi with potent anti-parasitic, anti-cancer and antibacterial bioactivity. Here's Alex again. So I know we've talked a lot about sloth hair, how it's thick and it gathers algae that helps grow bacteria. Scientists in Panama are now saying that over 84 different types of fungi can also be found on a sloth's coat, some of which are disease resistant. Apparently this fungus can defend against parasites that cause malaria and even breast cancer. So I guess we better start harvesting their hair. Can you imagine the antibacterial and cancer medications that could potentially come from this? I mean, sloth just keep getting cooler and cooler. Uh, well, thanks, Alex, from The Animalist. Um, one more thing that I wanted to tell you before we go here on Heavy Petting um, is that uh, bats, yes, this is it, bats, that's the one I wanted. Bats use a compass to find their way at night. This is another discovery that's been made this week. You might think, well, we kind of knew that, but this is a little different. This is the European bat, which can use the scatter patterns of sunlight to program its internal compass for hunting after dark. This is the first mammal known to do this. The only flying mammals, bats, use echolocation, a form of sonar to find their way around, but this only works at distances of up to about 50 meters. That's the part that we know. Um, we knew that they had to be using another of their senses for longer range navigation, and this has now been found out. They've long wondered whether bats could read the pattern of sunlight scattered in the atmosphere, that's called polarization, to orientate themselves to Earth's magnetic field. And, lo and behold, a team of scientists have found that this is the case. More and more that we're discovering about animals every day. Um, I'll bring you lots more facts next week. And uh, I'll also tell you how Project Pedicure went. And we'll have someone from Project Pedicure come and speak to us. And that's on Heavy Petting next week, Cliff Central, uh, 10 a.m. till 11. Thanks for joining us.